morning, everyone. My, uh, thank you, Jason. My name is Grant Swanson. Uh, I, my pronouns are he, him, his. And I am a former intern here at Urban Village Church, uh, but now I am a liturgical coordinator. So if you're ever interested in reading scripture like Jason just did, or interested in checking out what it means to be liturgist like Ori, uh, I'm the guy to chat with and I'd love to connect you. Also, as Hannah mentioned earlier, I'm a certified candidate in the United Methodist Church uh, towards ordination as a deacon. Um, and this is my home church, so I, it's just been an honor and a privilege and a blessing to grow uh, with and in this community. Uh, so I thank you all so much for your support. And if you'd like to hear more about this uh, process of ordination, uh, I'd love to chat with you. But enough about that. Let's pray and get into today's scripture. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Rock and Redeemer. Please be with us here today as we discuss sin, grace, and mercy, all through your unfathomable and boundless love. Amen. Let's get started today with a little singing. I'm going to start singing a familiar church song we practice today. Uh, when I point to you, please start singing if you know the song. Here we go. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves us. There is, this is something we know to be true from the countless examples in Scripture and in the life of Jesus Christ. We know this because the Bible tells us so. In countless scriptures like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. And in the scripture that we are discussing today, which we'll unpack together in a moment. But first, I wanted to discuss our sermon series title, For the Bible Doesn't Tell Me So. The origins of the phrase, for the Bible tells me so, in the lives of so many of us who were raised in the church or had connections with the church, it's this 1859 hymn, Jesus Loves Me, by Anna Bartlett Warner. And thinking about this, it is important for us to critically investigate and engage with the cultural idioms and phrases that we hear around us especially the ones that the capital C church latches onto. We need to prayerfully and communally discern whether or not the Bible really does tell us so, or whether another force is at work. The phrase that we are critically engaging with today is a triggering phrase for many of us. Love the sinner, hate the sin. If you feel comfortable Please raise your hand if you've ever heard this phrase used in sincerity, whether it be directed at another person or directed at you. 
As I suspected, few of us have been able to maneuver through life without coming into contact with this troubling phrase. It is a part of our national and religious vocabulary, and many people use this phrase without a second thought. However, when we search the origins of this phrase, we quickly discover it is not directly linked to a scripture verse or story in the Bible. The Bible really does not tell us so. Love the sinner, hate the sin is not a scriptural quote. Instead, it originates from the letter written by St. Augustine in year 424. The letter has a phrase roughly translated as, with love for mankind and hatred of sins. This phrase then found its modern form uh, when it was used in Gandhi's 1929 autobiography where it said, love the sinner but hate the sin. Now, while both of these men were deeply spiritual and experienced a rich relationship with God, we must recognize that this common phrase, used as frequently, if not more than scripture often, it is not a quote from the Bible. Literally, the Bible does not tell us so. I do understand the sentiment of this phrase. We are called to love people. It is sin and evil that causes harm, opposes God loves, and separates us from God. Sin and evil, not a person, are the forces of opposition to God's will that we must seek to flee and denounce. However, the reality of this phrase and how it's understood and lived out does not stay true to this sentiment. Just as we see in today's passage, our religious and cultural institutions seek ways to group particular people and particular sins into a label worthy of condemnation and universal disqualification from God's love in order to maintain the status quo of tradition. This phrase is lived out more accurately as love most sinners, hate or scapegoat particular sins. I think this focus on condemnation of particular people groups finds fruition and justification in the use of hate in this phrase. This focus on hate distracts us from the core essence of God's call in our lives to love. We have countless scripture references like John 3.16, stating that God loved us so deeply that God sent God's only son that we could experience rich love and full of grace with God for all eternity. And the scripture continues in verse 17, telling us, Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So where does this tone of condemnation and phraseology of hate the sin, which often manifests as hate particular sinners, come from? Why does it have such a grasp on us if the Bible doesn't tell us so? I think this question is where today's Bible story helps us. Let's set the scene together. Jesus has been up on the Mount of Olives praying and rejuvenating for a day of teaching. He has descended down into the town to teach at the temple. This is a place where the religious leaders came to teach, instruct, and guide the people of the land. This is a sacred place of tradition and structure. As a young religious upstart, Jesus was gaining a name for himself, utilizing methods that were unorthodox 
critically analyzing the tradition and structure of the temple in a way that did not cross the line into heresy, but was uncomfortable for the leaders. And for the religious leaders who sought to protect and maintain tradition, seeing that as a a main goal of what they were doing, this young leader could be a threat. And for these leaders, the temptation to trust the maintenance of tradition over the work of the Holy Spirit must have been great. And this fear of the loving work of the Holy Spirit and the rigid trust of tradition and structure maintenance has continued throughout the centuries into our world today. This fear of change and challenge to tradition is why we find a group of legal experts and Pharisees approaching Jesus in this text. This group of people who are wanting to protect tradition and structure are trying to test him so they can have a reason to bring charges and accusations against him, as we learn in verse 6. It is important for us, though, to focus in on the plan of these religious leaders and experts. We can tell a lot about this group, the temptation of prioritizing tradition and the desperate desire to maintain power and control through their plan and who it targets as the sinner. The plan is to bring a woman who is caught in adultery, and then they call on the scriptural law of Moses and the rituals of tradition to state that they are legally bound to stone the woman. They ask Jesus for his opinion, knowing that if he discounts biblical law and tradition, that they will finally have their accusation of heresy against him. But if he accepts, his followers will be disenfranchised by their leader who has been espousing the healing love and grace of God. Jesus loves me still today, walking with me on my way. Wanting as a friend to give light and love to all who live. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. The legal experts and religious leaders have a goal of trapping Jesus in a catch-22. To do that, they must have agreed to find a person with the sin that they could build the strongest case against so that they could condemn and scapegoat an entire person. But if adultery really was the easiest sin to build a case against, why didn't they bring both the man and the woman involved? Leviticus 20.10 does demand that both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. This intentional choice to only bring the woman involved in adultery reveals the cultural and historical devaluation of women as less than men and as the property of men. To bring a man would have created such a controversial stir the people to see a man, a member of a protected or privileged class, being condemned? No. It was much safer to bring a woman because society and culture already devalued and demonized women. And it was much easier to choose a sin that was so culturally shameful and private that they could easily define a person by that sin, 
a sexual sin. Leviticus talks about a wide variety of sins that are worthy of death, such as blasphemy, bearing God's name in vain, cursing parents, just to name a few. But since the beginning of time, sexuality and the policing of female bodies has been a particular focus of societies and their religious institutions, Christianity by no means being an exception. Sexual minorities, or those who have expressed their sexuality in ways contrary to societal and cultural norms, have been easy targets for communal condemnation and scapegoating, to be defined as nothing more than their perceived sin. As a result, a woman caught in a condemned sexual act made the most sense for the religious leaders and legal experts to target for their plan of entrapment of Jesus. But before we analyze Jesus' response, let's also acknowledge that the woman in this story is even denied a name. She is defined by her sin in a way that her only identifiable title is woman who committed adultery. She is known only by her named sin, showing how we all too easily subsume the sin and the sinner into one and the utter bullcrap of the love the sinner hate the sin phrase. When we hear the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, who can raise their hand and tell me what groups or communities are most often used for this reference? Any volunteers who would like to share? What, what communities are often used in reference to this love the sinner, hate the sin? Gay people? Spectrum. Queer folks. Yep. Yep, this is accurately. We most frequently hear Christian leaders and biblical experts use this phrase in reference to the queer community uh, or sexual and gender minorities or folks who express their sexuality outside the cultural norms and expectations of our nation's most uplifted and carefully constructed images of purity and rightness. Sound familiar? These are the communities that are the safest and easiest for religious leaders and biblical experts to target when trying to entrap and accuse spirit and greats preaching communities and individuals. These are the easiest communities who are beloved children of God for society and churches to subsume their identities into a named sin and universally condemn them for the sake of maintaining power, structures of purity, and tradition. There's so much to unpack here. How the Bible calls for diverse forms of loving companionship founded of love of God and love of one another, not just our cultural idol of heterosexual legal marriage. The diverse expressions of healthy sexual and relational interactions presented in the Bible that expand our very insular and constricting societal prescriptions. Biblical advocacy for the rights of all people, especially those who are marginalized and oppressed by the status quo, like the woman in this text. Our misunderstandings of sin as tally points that disqualify us from the love and grace of God, and so much more. But all these are sermons of their own, which I would love to discuss with any of you. However, what I do want to focus on is the toxic audacity 
of the legal experts and religious leaders to feel justified in scapegoating a person for their plan of trapping Jesus and maintaining power and tradition. Through this plan, they reveal that they believe themselves to be less morally corrupt and less sinful than this woman, and that belief of superiority is the heart of the love the sinner, hate the sin claim. To unpack this further, think of another common phrase, living in sin. If you have heard this phrase before in sincerity, whether directed at another person, directed at you or someone you know, can you please raise your hand if you feel comfortable? Another phrase that it's very difficult for us to maneuver this culture, this world, without coming across. Generally, this phrase is used to negatively, negatively reference a group of people living together who aren't married. Once again, this targets a group of people who live outside the socially constructed norms of purity, focusing on expressions of sexuality in order to make a designation for a socially identifiable sin. But this phrase does something particularly heinous. It suggests that some people are more entrenched or indwelt in sin than others. Living in sin and love the sinner, hate the sin, suggests that the speaker or the accuser is not living in sin, isn't a sinner, or isn't as sinful as the targeted group. It suggests that the speaker or the legal experts or the religious leaders or the Pharisees or any self-identified Christian using this phrase are sinless or less sinful. And that is a load of elitist baloney. Jesus' response to the Pharisees drives home this calling out of elitist power maintenance through scapegoating. Jesus draws a line in the sand and states, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. Whoever isn't living in sin can throw the first stone. Whoever isn't a sinner can throw the first stone. Whoever is free of hate can throw the first stone. Jesus calls out the toxic underlying beliefs of the religious elite by showing that their obsession with maintaining tradition and power structures has allowed them to feel superior as God's elect, less encumbered by the pitfalls and suffering of sinfulness, that they are justified in being the judge, jury, and executioners of a beloved child of God. One by one, they all drop their stones and walk away. Convicted and called out for the hate and fear of losing power that had led them to this violent and death-dealing action. And this mirrors the ways that God calls our religious, social, and cultural communities today to reflect on the ways that tradition, constructions of purity, and power maintenance lead us to scapegoat and condemn marginalized communities, hiding hate and violence under the guise of love. Jesus refuses to let this stand by showing that we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God and how while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because God made us in God's image and God commanded us to love one another for love is from God and God is love. And in that love, Jesus confirms that there is no room for hate. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor And hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
God calls us to cast aside hate and imbue all our being in God's radical love and grace. And we know all of these things because the Bible does tell us so. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus has called out the religious leaders and legal experts in the story by showing that God is not a judgmental being sitting high in the heavens, keeping scoreboards of wrongdoing, tallying higher-ranking sins and higher-ranking good deeds in such a way that condemns particular peoples and makes other peoples the deserving proctors of earthly judgment, condemnation, and justified hate. No, in fact, Christ is showing the exact opposite. This toxic understanding of God is a product of cultural and religious leaders and communities operating in an unbiblical manner. In order to maintain power and tradition, leading to the cultural and physical violence behind the scapegoat sacrifice and stoning of the woman in our text, and in the cultural and physical violence behind the scapegoat sacrifice and condemnation of sexual and gender minorities today. But wait, you may ask. While we recognize that the condemnation of sexual and gender minorities as living a life of sin is false, toxic, and not of God or the Bible, does that mean that God does not care about our universal sinful natures? Far from it. Once the dust has settled from Jesus standing up for the marginalized woman and calling out the vicious injustice of the religious leaders and legal experts, Jesus does two things. First, He drives home that no person has stayed to condemn her, showing the universality of sinfulness and the vileness of those in power trying to find cultural scapegoats to justify their sinfulness. Second, Jesus gives the woman an affirmation and a command out of love. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. Jesus shows that no sin condemns us or separates us from God's love in his direct refusal to condemn the woman. And the generality of his reference to sin refuses to link her general sinfulness as a human with the accused sin of adultery. Jesus shows how her and our general inclination towards sin is due to the presence of brokenness and evil in our world. Jesus is command to the woman just as God commands us, is to sin no more. As Christians, we are called to a life of intentional reflection, both as individuals and as communities, in order to seek God's will in our lives and to do good and cause no harm. James 4.17 tells us, Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. As Christians, we are seeking God's direction in our lives to do the most good for ourselves, for our communities, and for our world. Christ has freed us from the clutches of sin. 
As 1 John 1, 7 tells us, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But this freedom from sin's clutches cannot deceive us into thinking we are exempt from sin. As 1 John continues to tell us in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Sin will always be among us, choices that we must discern and make. But how we allow God's will and Holy Spirit to move in us and transform us will empower us to choose goodness, love, and right relationship over the harm of sin. Go and sin no more is how we allow God's all-encompassing, prevenient, and justifying grace to transform us evermore toward righteousness through God's radical love. To really drive home how the Bible does not tell us to love the sinner, hate the sin, all we have to do is look at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Here the religious leaders are, once again, trying to catch Jesus in a slip of understanding of the Old Testament. They ask him, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, you shall love your God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In this greatest commandment, there's no room for hate. The Bible does not tell us to love the sinner, hate the sin. The inspired word of God tells us to love. To love the sinner is to love ourselves, to love one another, to love our enemies, to love creation, and to first and foremost love God. There's no room for hate when we follow the God of love. May we be convicted as individuals, as a community, as a church, and as a world to go sin and hate no more. Jesus loves me, he will stay close behind me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen.